Evidently, that was not a good music stand. Well, hey, how are you guys doing? Wait, did someone, so I heard some mixed things there. I heard some yays. I think I heard like a boo out there. Was, was, that, was that just my ears or something? Oh, woo. Okay, big difference. Okay, I think I, I, think I can go on with a woo. I'm not sure about a boo. Uh, well, hey, welcome to Thrive. So glad everyone's here. Um, I don't think we have any slides tonight, which is unfortunate because, and, and really it's my fault. It's not the tech guy's fault. It's my fault. But uh, yeah, it's too, too bad. We're just going to go for it. Um, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And uh, you're just going to have to like follow along with me. It means you're actually going to actually ha like have a, a Bible out, believe it or not. You know, I was going to be nice to you and put all the verses up on screen, but man, like you guys might actually have to like read something. So, um, you know, hey, if you have a Bible, that's great. If you don't know worries at all, you can maybe like read along with someone who does or maybe even, you know, get the Bible app on your phone. Um, but yeah, we preach the word here at Thrive. Um, we want to take God's word seriously because um, it's, it changes lives and it might even change your life tonight. Uh, we are looking at a book in the Bible called the Book of Romans. And the Book of Romans is a letter that was written by a guy named Paul to a bunch of people in the city of Rome. And, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, David got up here and shared on part of Romans. And, and man, a couple of things, David, that you started out with that I just, I'm going to start out with tonight because I just thought they were so good. Um, David, you said that the Book of Romans is the gospel presented to man. The gospel presented to man, like the good news about what Jesus has done, written down in probably the most compact, thorough little letter uh, that's, that's ever been written. And you also, you had a, David had a really good quote. I'm going to read this quote. Uh, Every deep and meaningful change and revival in the church has started with a deep understanding of Romans. Isn't that crazy? And the reason that every meaningful change in revival in the church has started with a deep understanding of Romans is that God uses a book like this to change the world by changing hearts one heart at a time. So man, like if you want to be involved in a cause that's bigger than yourself, the way to do that is to like get right with God, get on track with God, because there's no greater cause than the cause of God and his kingdom and what he's doing in this world. So that's the book we're looking at tonight. And um, no slides. Saw some, some movement, which makes me wonder. But you know what? I'm just going to, if they come up, they come up. If they don't, they don't. Uh, I want to just sort of start into tonight by just sort of going over where we are in this book. We're going to look at the second half of chapter 7. So if you're following along, you can go to the second half of Romans chapter 7. Um, you know, so the last couple of, of weeks as we've been looking at the book of Romans, we've been looking at kind of three big theological words. Uh, those words are justification, sanctification, glorification. And since I see no one getting up out of their seat, I'm assuming that those words aren't like too scary. They haven't scared anyone off yet. Very glad about that. But, but what that is about, is it's about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. On the cross, Jesus set us free from the penalty of sin. And the, the analogy that I, I, I like to think of is that, like, if your life were a chalkboard and all of the things that you have done that you don't want anyone to know about, that you're ashamed of, that, that don't even meet up to your own standards, if all those things were written on a whiteboard, justification means that, like, Jesus erases that blank, erases that whiteboard completely clean, and he writes up his record on your whiteboard. So that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, who is the only person who ever has lived a perfect life, 
who, who obeyed all of God's requirements. He was the perfect person. He was more than just a teacher. He was more than just a good man, but he, he claimed to be God in the flesh. He's the only one who could actually satisfy God's requirements because he was God himself. And justification means that like all of Jesus' merit is put up there on the, on the whiteboard of your life. And then we've been talking about the second word, sanctification, which refers to, okay, well, great. So, like, now that I've, like, met God and that whole whiteboard transaction thing has happened, well, what do I do now? Like, how do I grow? How do I know God? How do I deal with all the junk and stuff that's still trying to cling on to me from the past? You know, like, when Lazarus came out of the grave in John chapter 11, he comes out of the grave, he's all covered in all these, like, nasty grave clothes. Lazarus was this dude who had died, and, and Jesus had raised him back to life, and he comes out with all these grave clothes on. And, and, and when you come back to life spiritually, when you meet Jesus, like sometimes there's still like grave clothes of the old life that are clinging to you. And Jesus says to the guys around Lazarus, he says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And he doesn't tell Lazarus, oh, you know, just you deal with all the stuff in your past. You deal with all the sin in your life. He tells the people around him because he knows that like unless there is Christian community around you that's helping you work through those things, then good luck. So but we've been talking about the, the, that kind of second part, um, which is how, how does God change you? How does God grow you? And, and, and those chapters on, on that subject of sanctification are chapters 6 through 8. Chapter 6, all about liberty, all about the way that God has given us liberty from the, from the power of sin through what Jesus did on the cross. Chapter 7 is about victory. How do you get practical victory in your life over sin? And then last chapter that we're going to look at in this section, chapter 8, security. Like, if you've been saved, like, is it possible that you can fall away, lose your salvation? Chapter 8 speaks to that. And this is where the rubber really meets the road in, in these chapters. Because, man, you know, like, if you're someone here who is following God tonight, like, chances are you might have had an experience that kind of was like my experience. Where, man, like, I remember when I first kind of really became a Christian, where, where Jesus really became real to me. And it was like like this, this like Holy Spirit growth spurt. And I was just like, just so excited by all the stuff I saw God doing in my life. He set me free from stuff. But then what has happened in my life and what's probably happened in some of your lives is like you keep living your life and God begins to show you your heart. And you begin to realize, holy cow, like there's all kinds of stuff in my heart that I didn't even know was there. And man, like, regardless of whether you feel like you've hit that, I just want to tell you, like, there are things in your heart that, man, if you saw what you were capable of, if you saw, like, all the nasty, evil stuff that's in there, you'd be like, whoa, I would not want to even be my own friend. This is what our passage is going to speak to. Like, how does God change a person to help them grow in Christ? And, and I'm going to read this passage. It's going to tell us um, about a Christian's relationship to three things. First thing, a Christian's relationship to sin, a Christian's relationship to him or herself, and then finally, a Christian's relationship to the Holy Spirit. So uh, I'm going to read this chapter, and if you have a Bible and want to just read it with me uh, or follow along, then uh, I'm going to start in verse 14. I'm going to go all the way down to the end of the chapter. So Romans 7, four, uh, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For what I do is not the good I want to do, no. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So man, you know, as I'm reading that, like, I bet you that, like, you're hearing that, and you're hearing Paul describe, like, his own struggles, and you might be thinking, man, like, it sounds like I wrote this. I mean, how many times has it been true of you that, like, man, like, I don't want to be doing this thing. Like, I don't want to be, like, sleeping, even if something simple is, like, sleeping in, like, 30 minutes past my alarm when I, you know, I hit the snooze button over and over again. Like, I, you know, I meant to wake up at 6 o'clock and I got up at, like, 7 o'clock or, you know, whatever it is. Like, who hasn't been in the place of, like, man, I didn't want to do this, but I did it again. And I did it again and I did it again and I did it again. And it just feels like, like, man, you know, some people talk about sins, you know, like, oh, man, there's, like, this, like, all, all these things that, 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 like, are displeasing to God that we can do. Like, sure. I'll, I'll give you that, but like, I think the, the more important word to get right is just the word sin. And that's not a word that is talked about in our, in our culture, because it's a word that, like, that, that kind of carries a lot of weight. There's a lot of confusion about the word sin, but the Bible talks about it. It talks about it pretty bluntly. And it speaks about sin as not just like stuff that we do, but it's like a power that can rule over you. So that you're like Paul in this passage, like, man, I don't want to be doing what I'm doing, but I just feel like I'm stuck and I'm trapped in a cycle. And I just want to bring out three truths from what we read, okay? So just three truths. And here's the first one. First one is that a Christian is not sinless, but he should sin less. A Christian is not sinless, but he should sin less. So this first thing kind of speaks to, like, what's the Christian's relationship to sin? And, you know, man, there's like a big debate if you're like a, a, a theologian, about, man, when Paul writes this, is he writing this as a Christian? Or is he writing this as, like, not a Christian? Like, before he met Jesus, is this kind of the experience he's talking about? Is he a believer or is he not a believer? And, well, you know, one side says he couldn't, you know, he must have not been a believer because, you know, Paul says earlier, like, I've been set free from sin. How could Paul stay? He's still stuck in it. And then on the other side, you got people who say, well, of course, he, he must have been a believer because you know, he changes from using the past tense, now he's using the present tense, so he's talking about something he's still experiencing, and he says he's a slave in his mind to God's law, and you find out in chapter 8 that, like, you know, how could a non-believer say that? And, and you know what? I'm not going to go into the whole debate tonight. I don't think it's, it's worthwhile. Um, I kind of lean toward the view that he's talking about himself as a Christian. Um, but I don't really want to get into that because you don't want to let what you don't know keep you from what you do know. And, and, man, let me tell you something I do know. And what I do know is that you can be a born-again believer and still struggle with sin. You can be a born-again believer and still struggle with sin. And let me just prove this to you from Scripture. So if you go to the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 8, John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, like, if you're someone who says, like, man, like, I've just, you know, I, I, I'm just totally perfect, totally sinless, 
you know, I've just, I, I've kind of graduated into like, like perfect, glorious holiness. I'm just perfect. John like smacks you in the face and says, no, like if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you know, it doesn't do any good to compare yourself to another person and say, well, you know, at least I'm better than that guy. Because when it comes to this, this whole subject of sin, it's like swimming to Hawaii. You know, like if you're swimming from here to Honolulu, you know, there might be someone who's like a pretty lousy swimmer like me. They go a couple feet and then they drown. Well, then you have someone who's a little better and then they go like maybe a couple hundred yards and then they drown. And then you have someone who's like really good, like Ryan Grady here. And Ryan goes like several miles and then, I'm sorry, Ryan, you would drown too. Because no one can swim to Hawaii. Like, it doesn't matter how good you are. It's the same thing with sin. Like, God is a holy God. And there's no human being except for Jesus Christ who can ever measure up to that standard. So you can't just, like, compare yourself to someone else and say, oh, man, good thing that I'm better than that person. Therefore, like, I'm off the hook. So, so that's one verse that, that shows that, man, you, you can be a Christian and still have struggles with sin. The, the other thing I want to point out to you is just think about, like, like, think about, like, some of the other letters in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians. You guys know that, that letter? It's full of, like, all of these guys in the church at Corinth who are gluttons and squabblers. They're divisive. And you know what Paul calls them? He calls them the church of God. He calls them, he says that you guys are called to be saints. Now, what am I saying in all this? I'm, I'm not, absolutely not, and, and, and this will be abundantly clear here, I'm absolutely not saying that we can make peace with sin. What I am saying is that a Christian is not sinless, but he should sin less. And let me unpack that a little bit. So if you are someone who is not a believer, then what the Bible says is that for the unbeliever, sin is natural. Because the Bible says that if you aren't a Christian, you're a slave to sin. And again, it's too bad I can't show you these verses. I'm just going to read them. And you're just going to have to like look them up and, and just like hold me to it that they're actually in there. But like Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says to the, to the guys he's writing to, you used to be slaves to sin. As in like before you knew Jesus, you were a slave to sin. Or like Ephesians chapter 2. This is like the like golden passage about like what God has rescued us from. Like this is the state of anyone who has not believed in Jesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the, this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What he's saying is, sin was a part of our nature. Like, if you've ever seen a pig rolling around in the mud, like, you're not going to go up to that pig and say, you know, you stop that. Like, what do you, stop rolling around in the mud? Like, of course not. Like, it's in the nature of a pig to do that. And what God is saying is that, like, there, there, there's a new nature and an old nature, and the nature, of the, the, the nature of the old nature is to sin. So you can put it this way. Before the fall, we weren't sinful and we were able not to sin. After the fall, we are sinful, but we're not able not to sin. At conversion, at the moment of meeting Jesus, we are sinful, but we're able now not to sin. And then in heaven, we're no longer going to be sinful, and it will be impossible to sin. So that's the old nature. But what about like in a believer? Well, in 
the believer, sin is no longer natural. It's unnatural. Because it's not a part of the new nature. God has given us the nature of his own son. Like Jesus' nature is, is wired into you if you are a Christian. And what that means is that like the whole warp and woof of your humanity has fundamentally changed. And if you have ever like gone from like not being a Christian to becoming a Christian, you probably know what this is like. Where it's like, man, all of a sudden I'm like desiring things that I never desired before. You know, like, man, I'm starting to love people that I used to totally hate. You know, I, I'm starting to want to wanna, like serve people who can never give me anything in return. I'm starting to like want to love with no strings attached. God sets you free from sin so that you can be set free to love other people in Jesus' name. Guess ever heard, you know, there, there's this old story by Mark Twain called The Prince and the Pauper. It's made it into a movie and it's all, you know, probably been, been redone in all kinds of other, you know, books and movies and that kind of thing. And, and it's about these two guys, these two boys, and I think they, you know, wind up, actually, it turns out that they're twins, which is why they, they look exactly alike. One of them happens to be the king's son. The other one happens to be like a poor beggar who lives in this squalid little, little, little place. And they eventually somehow, like, wind up switching places. And so the poor boy winds up living as, as the son of the king and then vice versa. But imagine, like, imagine that you're the poor kid. And you've been brought into the king's home, and you're, like, able to feast now at the king's table. I mean, imagine how crazy it would be. Imagine how, un oh, there you go. Imagine how, <laughs> thanks, you guys. Imagine how unnatural it would be if, like, you are that guy, and you've been brought into the feast, and, and like, you still walk around, like, with your face covered in mud, and you're still, like, wearing your royal, your, your, your rags instead of royal robes. You know, imagine that you still, like, you know, put your elbows on the table and you, like, belch after every bite. I mean, that would be gross. And it'd be, it wouldn't be natural to the position that you've been raised up into. And in the same way, like, if you know Jesus, then he's given you his nature. He's adopted you into his family. And he's seated us at his table. And so the point of all of this is that if you're a believer, then all of us are called to get serious about sin. It's not in our nature. And if there's a sin or, or some kind of stronghold in your life that you've chosen not to deal with it, can I just plead with you to deal with it? And the reason that this is so important is that being a Christian is a little bit like going up the down escalator. Like we live in a society that is not that does not know God or love God or care for the things of God. And so it, the only way for a, for a fish to swim upstream is if it's living rather than dead. And if you have, like, God's life in you, then that means that it's an upswim stream. Being a Christian is like going up the down escalator. And that's true, like, not just, like, like in, in life and in society, but just, like, when it comes to this. All of us, like, if we're not, like, moving forward and pursuing God and, like, knowing him more... Then, then we're moving backwards. Do you guys have, there's a diagram in there that has a cross in it. If you guys have that, could you put that up on screen? Okay, so check this out. This is what this looks like. So imagine that like that's, the, 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 you know, kind of the place where the, the two lines like come together and it gets small. Imagine like that's you the day that you become a Christian for the first time. And you're like, Wow. I've seen what God has done. Like, he's laid down his life for me on the cross. And that's like, whoa, I can't believe that God, like, would, would pay such a price for someone who's, like, as unworthy and as broken as me. 
Well, what happens is, like, as you go over time, like, imagine, like, this is like a graph, and, like, as you move closer and closer to the cross, like, that's, like, the span of your life. The way that you know that you're growing and moving forward rather than moving backward is that, like, two things are going to happen. The first thing is, like, your view of God is going to increase, and you're going to say, the more and more that I follow this Jesus guy, the more I'm just blown away how amazing he is. Like, I'm blown away by how, how beautiful he is, how glorious he is, and I'm blown away that he would lay down his life for someone like me. So your view of God will increase, and your view of self is going to decrease. Now, I'm not saying, like, oh, you know, we should just kind of, like, hang our heads and always be, like, really dreary. and dreary. No, like, to know God is to, like, know joy. But what I am saying is, like, humility. Humility. Like, you're going to realize... Man, the longer I live, the more God shows me the true wiring of, like, my own kind of natural heart. And, I'm gonna be, and you're going to be like, wow, I can't believe that, like, God would ever rescue a guy who's as wretched as me. This is what growth looks like. And this is what it looks like when you get serious about sin and say, I'm going to move forward. I want to, like, make progress in my life as a believer. To, you know, Paul tells Timothy, he doesn't say, let everyone see your perfection, but he says, let everyone see your progress. All of us should be moving forward, not backward. And, and that's one of the great things about Thrive is that like, we're a community, and, and no one can do this on their own. And so we have this amazing community for, for all of us to be encouraged, to be spurred on, to be sharpened by everyone else here. Everyone who's here tonight is an encouragement to everyone else, because we're all doing this together. So that's the first thing, is that a Christian isn't sinless, but he should sin less. We shall be moving forward rather than backward. And then second thing this passage says really gets kind of into the meat and potatoes of it, which is you can't overcome sin. You can't do this, this thing I've described. You can't overcome sin simply by trying harder. You can't overcome sin simply by trying harder. This is a Christian's relationship to self. And how do we know this from this passage? And the way that we know this is that when you read through what Paul says here, it's a little bit like he's trying to push a rock up a mountain. You know, imagine that you're pushing a rock up a mountain, and you know the image, right? Like, the, it's so heavy, the rock just, like, falls back on top of you, and you have to, like, push it up again. Well, Paul does this three times in this passage. There are three cycles. So look at verse 14. The first cycle, he looks at what he does. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. And then he kind of explains what he means. He says, I don't understand what I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, that's the very thing I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. So he kind of concludes in verse 17. He says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So what's the conclusion of the first cycle, the first attempt to kind of push the rock up the hill of holiness. His conclusion in verse 17 is, sin wins. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Like, sin's the one who won that round. Second cycle, verse 18. Now he's looking at who he is. He says, well, okay, here's what I do. Let's go a level deeper and see, well, why do I do that? Why do I live in this way that, like, totally contradicts all of my convictions? And he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. You know, by the way, the beginning of each one of these cycles, because it always begins with like a phrase like, we know, or I know, or I find. So he says, I know that nothing good lives in me, in my sinful nature. Then he explains, he says in verse 19, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then, in verse 20, he concludes. 
He says, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. It's the exact same conclusion. Sin wins round two. And now the third cycle, he tries one more time to push the rock up the hill. He says, look, he now looks at why he is how he is. He says in verse 21, okay, here's the explanation. I find this law at work, and when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. He's like this conflicted guy. For he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then the conclusion is in verse 25, and it's the exact same thing. Sin wins again. He says, I find myself in my mind a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So you've got these three cycles, and all of them conclude with, like, I tried beating this thing in my own strength, and it crushed me. What he's saying is, it's impossible to overcome sin by simply trying harder. Let me tell you three things that you're not powerful enough to do on your own. You're not powerful enough to wreck your own life. I mean, think of Jonah. Jonah was a guy who ran away from God and tried as hard as he could to completely disobey God. And God takes his life and he makes him fulfill the call anyway. And he, he uses him. We have a sovereign God. You can't wreck your own life. You're not powerful enough for that. Number two, you're not powerful enough to wreck someone else's life. Remember when Joseph's brothers tried to do that? They throw him in a pit and they say, now we've really ruined this guy. Now we can get rid of our, our brother that we hate. And then God, in his sovereignty, says, I'm going to use that guy, Joseph. I'm going to use him to completely rescue all of those brothers who hated him. You're not powerful enough to wreck your own life. You're not powerful enough to wreck someone else's life. And you're not powerful enough to beat sin. You're not. Sin is stronger than you, stronger than me. You know, Satan is a pretty wily guy. He's smarter than you. And he's had thousands of years to practice. What all this means is that like our self-sanctification schemes don't work. They don't work when you say, like, I'm just going to white-knuckle it. And I'm just going to change by my own effort so that I can like kind of strut up to Jesus and say, wow, Jesus, look at how I'm like so good at like dealing with all the junk in my life. It doesn't work. And, and, and Paul goes on to explain in, in this book why it doesn't work. And the main reason... The, 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 the kind of the heart of this whole thing is that what we do when we're trying to change ourselves rather than let God be the one changing us is that we look to the law instead of to Jesus. We look to the law instead of to Jesus. And by the law, Paul is talking not just about the law of Moses, but about like any like set of rules or principles that, you, that we look to to try to make ourselves okay or to try to be enough on our own. And, and last week when Tim looked at the first chapter, first half of this book, he, he, like, preached through the part where Paul says, like, the law can't do anything like that for you. Like, the law can't save you. The law can't change you. The only thing that those rules do is they reveal sin. You know, all you need is, like, a rubric to kind of show, like, man, I'm not, like, meeting this rubric. The law arouses sin. So, like, if you see a sign that says wet paint, don't touch, what do you want to do? You want to touch the paint. Actually, I had this happen to me. Uh, I was, I was uh, somewhere, and there was a, a railing that had a bunch of wet paint on it, and I was like, I, I thought of that little illustration. I was like, I want to touch the paint. I didn't touch the paint. <laughs> and then the last thing the law does, in verse 10, he says, the law kills. The law kills. And the reason the law kills is because the law shows you the nature of your own heart. And if that's all that we were left with, we would just be completely in despair all the time. It's why, into this chapter, he cries out, who can rescue me from this body of death? 
And if you read through the rest of the Bible, you find out the law was never meant to sanctify you. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses eight and, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, you know, look, the law is good, but you've got to use it properly. And we also know the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. I mean, think of what this is saying. Like, we have been made righteous in God's sight. Which means that we don't make progress in our Christian life by just looking to a bunch of rules. We do that by looking to Jesus. Or another verse is Colossians chapter 2, where Paul says, Look, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And if you were just to like paraphrase all that, he's basically saying that, you know, look, it seems really impressive when you're like, man, I'm like just this really religious guy. Like I, I, I oh, check off all the boxes, I obey all the rules, and I kind of do all these outward things, and it seems like, man, I must have it all together on the inside. But what he says is that the rules that you follow on the outside can't change the desires and the heart on the inside. So what this means is that like trying harder isn't, isn't enough. And this just goes straight to the heart of human pride because what are we as human beings always looking for? We're always looking for what we can do. I mean, what are the, remember what the Philippian jailer said? He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer to him is just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we're always trying to look for just like what rule can I follow? What law can I obey so that like I can basically do it on my own without a need for Jesus? Which is why deep, deep down at the heart of all legalism is pride. At the heart of all legalism is pride. I want to point out another detail in this passage too that, that, that you... you uh, probably noticed as we're reading through this. Like, do you notice how many times Paul refers to himself in this? It's 47 times in this chapter that he uses, like, the personal pronoun, like I or we or, or me or something like that. And, and this is the picture of what a defeated Christian looks like. A defeated Christian is someone who has, like, put all of their focus on self. And they're looking at themselves and they're just saying, like, man, I just am such a screw-up. I'm just stuck in this, this rut. And, and, like, you just look at, at, like, all of your stuff instead of looking to the only one who's able to change you, who is Jesus Christ. So, this, so, so Paul here is suffering from what you might call, like, myopia. Like, he's nearsighted. Because he's looking at himself. Do you remember what, like, uh, in Second Peter, I don't have a, a slide for this, I just, this came to mind just now, so you're just going to have to, like, flip there with me. But in Second Peter, he actually, he actually tells you that, look, if anyone does not have all of these qualities of, like, kind of moving forward in faith and kind of, like, adding faith and love and all these things to, to, to your walk with God, then he is nearsighted and blind, and listen to this, has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So, like, being spiritually blinded, suffering from myopia, is like the condition of forgetting that Jesus has already paid it all. 
He's completely dealt with the problem of sin. And it's not by looking to ourselves that we make steps forward and following him. It's in looking to him. He's the only one. He's the only one who can deal with all of our sins and addictions and ruts and, and, and problems. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. There's nothing we can do to add to his work. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. And I want to read you a quote here. Because this tendency that we have to try to do stuff in our own power is so deep. So, uh, it's the one that's not a Bible verse. (laughs) Um, But I'll, I'll just read it here and then hopefully it'll get up there. The thing is, no one thinks of himself as a legalist. Such persons just think of themselves as someone who takes holiness seriously. After all, it has the appearance of wisdom, as Colossians says. But if you want to see a legalist, take a look in the mirror. Deep in the heart of all of us is the proud desire to prove ourselves. Sin is wanting to live our lives our own way without God. The terrible irony is that we even want to overcome sin our own way without God. The struggle against legalism was not done and stored away 2,000 years ago in Galatia or 500 years ago at the Reformation. The battle with legalism takes place every day in our hearts. Isn't that good? <laughs> I was like smitten when I read that. <laughs> so, so, you know, look, the problem is not with the, the, the law. It's not with, with the rules. The problem is with ourselves. You know, you know, I heard a story once about a little kid who like did something wrong and he came up to his dad and said, well, dad, the devil made me do it. But what Paul's saying here is that the problem is, is, is with our own hearts. Like that's the nature of our truth of ourselves without God is like all of us are, are, are just wrecked and will only wreck our lives more when we're in the driver's seat. So that just, you know, one last point here. If, if this is not the way to fight sin, what is the way to fight sin? And the way to fight sin um, is to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, the very end of this chapter, he asks that question, he's like, man, who can rescue me from this body of death? And he actually like, kind of like, misses out concluding his argument because like he just can't help himself like he's just got to say like it's Jesus <laughs> like Jesus is the one who rescues me from this body of death thanks be to Christ Jesus our Lord Jesus is the one and, and actually Paul's already told you how Jesus does it and that was what we looked at in chapter six I want to go back and I just want to look at chapter six one more time because like you've got to get what chapter six is saying in order to figure this out you know chapter six and seven are next to each other for a reason because chapter seven is the wrong way to change. Like in chapter 7, it's like this guy, he's looking at himself. He's like so stuck in his own, his own rut that he can't like get his eyes onto Jesus. Chapter 6 is all about the right way to change. And in chapter 6, Paul says, okay, like how is it then that we can keep from going on in sin? And his answer is not like, well, it's because of fear of punishment. You know, like, oh, you know, man, if you only saw how big of a, like a, a stick God was wielding. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the way that we keep from going on sinning, chapter 2, verse 6, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then he unpacks what that means with three magic little words. And the words are no, reckon, and yield. You might remember this from last week. I'm going to say it again because it's so important. No, reckon, and yield. The first thing he says, you've got to know something. You've got to know something. You know, man, Satan can keep believers in impotence if he can keep them in ignorance. And so Paul says, there's something you've got to know. And the thing you've got to know is that you died to sin. When Jesus was crucified, 
We died with him. He took that sin nature that we have and he nailed it to the cross. He crucified it there. The old man is dead. And we no longer have to look at that and say, that's who I am. I mean, when you're like in, in between the rock and the hard place of temptation and you feel like, you know, one direction or another direction, which one do I do? Like, you could say like, this one is not the real me. Because the old me died. The old me is gone. It's dead. So, so here's how someone says this. He says, God doesn't command us to become dead to sin. He tells us that we are dead to sin and alive unto God. And then he commands us to act on it. So when Satan says jump, you don't have to jump. Because that old guy is dead. And we've been given a new identity in Christ. So you've got to know something. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to reckon something. And when, you know, the word reckon just is like a word that means like, live as though it were true. So in verse 11 he says, in the same way count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that word count yourselves, same word as the word reckon. And so he's just saying like, it's a fact. It's a fact that your old sinful self is dead. You're not under that guy's power anymore. Now believe it. Live like it's true. And then the final word is the word yield. In chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, he, he talks about yielding. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer, or the word offer is also the word yield, do not yield the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And the point is, he's like, well, you, 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 you have a choice. You can choose to yield your body to, to sin or you can choose to yield your body to God. He's saying, you know, you're dead. Your old man is dead, so, and, and, and you know it's true. And so we have the power now to yield our bodies to God and to be used as instruments of righteousness. We don't have to jump when Satan says jump. And this is, this is so amazing. You know, I have a friend who is set free from pornography by this chapter. When he realized what it meant, he realized, like, some, something broke. And he was like, I don't have to bow to this demon any longer. You can't beat sin on your own strength, but you can through the power of God's spirit. And that starts with knowing this truth that, man, like, I died. Like, as it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we think about sanctification. We think about like growing in Christ as this picture of like a rock that we have to push up the hill. But sanctification is God's work by his spirit. And the better image is of a rock rolling down a hill. Because that's who we are. Like that's our nature in Christ. And as we yield ourselves to him, we're going to see ourselves change from the inside out without even knowing how we did it. I think so often we're trying to grow stronger shoulders when we really need weaker knees. And if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I am stuck in something. And I want to get out of it. Can I just suggest to you that like, God wants to take you to the end of yourself. God wants to take you to the end of yourself where you have no recourse. Because it's only when you've come to the end of yourself 
that you can simply come to God and say, Lord, like, yes, please. <laughs> like, yes, please, I give you permission to come into my life and to change me. Like, that's all it takes. It's just a simple yes to God. Yield yourselves to be instruments of righteousness. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> when I was in high school, for a number of years, I struggled with masturbation. And, you know, I tried to do all the right things, and I, you know, I tried to obey all the rules, and nothing changed. One night, I remember just coming to the end of myself, and I literally fell on my knees, and just, you know, no strength in my shoulders, just fell on my knees, and something broke. And I don't know how to explain this, but like, it just wasn't an issue after that. I'm not saying that that's how it works for everybody. But I am saying that, like, it's not by what we do. It's by what God does by his spirit. Uh, we're going to move into small groups now. Uh, but before we do, um, I want to first of all, thank you for, for, for being here tonight. Thank you for listening. Um, and I want to just share um, an announcement about just some, some stuff that we're going to be talking about in the next two weeks here at Thrive. Um, you know, obviously, like, what we're looking at is a big deal. Um, and it's a big deal, uh, not just because, like, this is amazing stuff, but because it's, it's just so personal. Um, and I'm sure that there are many um, people in our generation who struggle with some of the very same sorts of things that, like, I said I struggled with back in an earlier time. And so what we want to do for the next two weeks is we want to take what we looked at tonight and we want to apply it to a particular area um, you guys might know that as we've been going through the series of Romans, we've, on, on Romans, we've been pausing periodically to do what we're kind of calling uh, hot potatoes in Romans. So subjects that are kind of like pretty hard to handle, pretty hot to the touch. Um, there, there it is. We did one a little while ago on, on the subject of is God anti-gay. We're going to take two weeks to speak to the subject of pornography and sexual sin. And all we're going to do is we're going to take what we talked about tonight and just apply it specifically to that. Now, why, why am I telling you this? Well, I want to tell you this, first of all, to say that, like, we're not doing this because we're trying to single anyone out or any group of people out, because the, the reality is all of us are sexual sinners, no matter what it is we struggle with. But, you know, man, the real reason is that, like, man, I want to see the power of the gospel brought to bear on, like, an area that is, like, super, super hard for, I, I think, probably the majority of people in our generation. So I want to encourage you to come. You might, <laughs> felt like I felt a few minutes ago, just like, man, I don't want to go there. This freaks me out. I want to encourage you to come next week. This is not going to be exposing. We're not going to like say, okay, everyone needs to like raise up and like give their testimony. But no, we're not doing that. But the reason I want to encourage you to come is because I, I, I want you to, to see how the power of God can bring radical transformation to every area of life. And this is one of them. So I want to give you guys that heads up. I don't want to spring that on you, but we're going to take this, uh, this next week, there's going to be a time of teaching. The week after that, we're going to have um, a, an older person who's sort of been a mentor to me, who's going to come and share a testimony, and, and I'm confident that God is going to use both of those things as a big encouragement uh, to the whole Thrive community. So I just want to share that that's what's going to be happening. It's kind of why we're doing it. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Amanda. Uh, we're going to move into a time of small groups and uh, move toward the end of our evening.